Support for WERU comes from our listeners and from the Maine Community Foundation, working with donors and other partners to improve the quality of life for all Maine people on the web at maincf.org. It's 10.03 and you are tuned to WERU-FM 89.9 Blue Hill, 99.9 Bangor and streaming online at WERU.org. Talk of the Towns with your host Ron Beard is up next. Good morning and welcome to Talk of the Towns here on WERU. We try to go beyond the headlines to make sense of the issues facing Maine communities to share what works to seek alternative solutions. Talk of the Towns began in 1993 with support from Cooperative Extension, the major educational outreach program of the University of Maine. Cooperative Extension puts knowledge to work with the people of Maine and like WERU, whose mission is to be a voice of many voices, operates out of a sense that everyone benefits when we share our knowledge, our experience, our concerns, our perspectives. We're about to practice the magic of community radio, in which those of us in the studio and you who are listening create a dialogue that we hope will be of benefit to our friends, our neighbors, and colleagues. I hope you'll stay with us for the next hour and talk of the towns. Just a reminder that this is Veterans Day, so a a remembrance of those who have served in the military uh, for our country. We're also um, in the midst of our uh, pledge drive, and uh, those of you uh, who are listening um, may have a chance to call in and and support the radio station by calling 1-800-643-6273. But this morning, we're going to talk about addiction. We all know someone who's affected by alcohol or drug addiction. Addiction to opioids dominates the headlines and people of all political stripes clamor for solutions. New research is changing what we know about addiction and how to treat it. And this morning we've got some wonderful folks in the studio who can help us understand some of those changes, some of the emerging research and best practices and treatment. Welcome to Dr. Dan Johnson, who is Executive Director of the Acadia Family Center. Welcome to you, Dan. Thank you very much, Ron. And Dr. Vivek Kumar, Assistant Professor at the Jackson Laboratory and a board member of Acadia Family Center. Welcome to you, Dr. Kumar. Thank you very much, Ron. It's great to have you both with us. Perhaps each of you could um, give us a really a, a short thumbnail sketch of your career. Um, uh, Dan Johnson, how did you get started in this in this work of, of working with people um, who have various forms of addiction? Well, Ron, I, I started out in education and, uh, and then was a school counselor on Mount Desert Island uh, for eight years and then went to Acadia, Acadia Hospital uh, for almost 21 years. Uh, and. And during that time, I worked in the uh, narcotics treatment program, which was a methadone program with o- over 900 patients. And uh, it was just a, an astounding discovery for me to, to understand uh, the prevalence of, ad- of addiction. And um, But living on Mount Desert Island, I wanted to come back to my community. And so when this opportunity came about three years ago, I was happy to sort of take over at Acadia Family Center. So that notion of moving from counseling uh, students, mm-hmm. help, a helping kind of role, to a very specific role with working with folks who have addictions. Exactly. And, you know, it's, it's, it's quite interesting. Uh, in the 20-something years between those two uh, jobs, uh, I now have people who I saw as first and second graders at the, uh, in some of the schools now are seeing me in, in their 30s as people suffering from addiction. So mm-hmm. it's just a remarkable experience to, to, uh, to learn that and to, to try to do some 
something to help them. Mm. Dr. Kumar, um, where did you get your start? And, and you're at the Jackson Lab. Tell us a little bit about how you, how, how you got there. Sure. Um, I am pretty much an academic scientist. I uh, have a PhD in biology, molecular genetics from the University of California in San Diego. I started a uh, postdoctoral fellowship at Northwestern University and finished uh, as instructor at University of Texas Southwestern Medical Center. Mm -hmm. And then after that, uh, the Jackson Laboratory made uh, an, an incredible, uh, it's an incredible environment to, to carry out research. And uh, I'm a mouse geneticist. It's uh, really a mecca for mouse geneticists. Um, and my work really focuses on trying to understand what are the underlying genetic causes of complex behavioral disorders, especially uh, uh, things dealing with the reward circuitry, with this uh, circuitry in the brain that regulates addiction, among many other things. Mm. So we're interested in using the mouse as a model to delve really into the underlying genetic causes of many human diseases. Mm. Do you remember what inspires you to become a scientist? What uh, led you on this path? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I actually started uh, in, a, in a kind of a, a, a very trivial way, which was science fairs. And I started doing science fairs sure. when I was in high school, and I just was taken by the, the, the science bug. And I just loved this idea of coming into the lab every morning and having uh, you know, the opportunity to discover something that no one else has really discovered. Mm. And uh, 99 out of 100 times you come in and you're disappointed, but that one time uh, you, you do find something and that kind of keeps me going. On a personal level, the reason I'm kind of I've decided to not uh, focus more outside the lab and kind of get involved in this debate that's going on in addiction, especially in the state of Maine, is because um, I read this uh, moving obituary of Colleen Singer that was published in the Bangor Daily News, and it described how the state policies had failed her, and it led to her overdose. And, and I felt, you know, as a researcher working in mouse genetics, uh, it's important to carry out the fundamental work, but it's also really important to get out there and talk mm -hmm. about what mm -hmm. we're doing and how it affects everyone. Mm -hmm. And that led you to join the board of Acadia Family Center? That led me to write yeah. op-eds, uh -huh. and that kind of led to uh, uh, Dan and uh, Acadia Family Center, yes. Great. Well, Dan, tell us about the, the origins of Acadia Family Center. It used to be known as something else. I can't remember the exact name, but um, there's been an evolution over time. Tell us a little bit about that evolution. Right. About 35 years ago, um, the MDI Drug and Alcohol Group was mm -hmm. formed. And uh, that was a very important organization. They did a lot of support. And I was working at the schools at the time, and they were providing resources for us to do some prevention education. Um, over the years, uh, the need for treatment became so obvious that the, uh, the MDI Drug and Alcohol Group uh, split into two, and the other branch being the Acadia Family Center, where treatment uh, for addiction was um, was offered. And then about um, another dozen years or so, it, they kind of went back into one entity being the Acadia Family Center, where our mission is really to do prevention, education, and treatment. Um, so we're, we have uh, prevention educators in the, uh, the schools, uh, trying to do 10-week programs in the middle schools, and particularly on Montezuma Island and the surrounding communities. Um, and we, we've been uh, dealing with uh, we're duly licensed, so we, we deal with addiction issues, but we also we're a licensed mental health facility as well. And what we know is that uh, there's a great deal of co-occurrence between addiction and mental health disorders. Mm.
And and you talk about prevention, working in the schools. What would that program look like? How, how do you work with young children around prevention issues? Well, in our current model, we go into the middle schools where the kids are so um, exposed to so much and just give them honest information about that and also give them an opportunity to ask questions about what they hear. Uh, kids are really good at observing, uh, but they're not also so great at times interpreting what they observe. Or so they can dis discerning. Yeah, or discerning. Right, exactly. Right. Exactly. Um, with younger kids, uh, when I was a school counselor, I used to go in and we'd, we'd work on issues around convict resol resolution, managing uh, feelings, and so forth. Um, we know there's a very, a very uh, large proportion of people with addiction issues that suffer from mental health disorders. Uh, we know that certain uh, kids, there are certain traits that make them more prone to addiction. Um, they are uh, sensation-seeking, uh, impulsivity issues, uh, anxiety sensitivities, and hopelessness. So three of those um, are related to uh, mental health disorders. The, the um, impulse problems are like an ADHD problem, the anxiety issues, and as well as the depression with hopelessness um, the the fourth category the sensation seeking is these are these are kids that you know this need to keep pushing at things and drugs become a very tempting target so if we can if we can target those kids early on and provide them with some resources with some tools to manage their anxiety to manage their impulsivity to help them with their depression we've make, made a great stride in helping them um, from going down the course of, of a substance use disorder. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's really incredibly important, and we, we are trying to, um, to do as much of that as we can. It seems to me that the, the early uh, drug and alcohol kinds of treatments um, were trying to address society's myth that this was a moral question. This was a, a question of character versus biology or environment. Is that, is that accurate? Oh, absolutely, and Vivek and I were talking about this driving over today. Um, we know that addiction is a, is, a, is a brain disease, and for so long, people who suffered from addiction were characterized as weak or morally deficient or some ridiculous uh, judgment, and it's just not fair, and we liken it to other disorders, um, diabetes, for example, uh, hypertension. These are, these are acquired diseases, and addiction is an acquired disease. We know that there are environmental factors. We know that there are uh, genetic factors. And so um, whatever we can do to help people um, seek help is, is so important. And the stigma around addiction just prevents people from seeking help. And I, my mantra is treatment works. We just need to get people into treatment. And about 80 to 90 percent of people with mental health disorders or addiction issues do not seek treatment or are not in treatment. And that's incredibly sad because we know we can help them. Mm. Mm. Dr. Kumar, um, tell us a little bit about the, the emerging research, your research and the research of others that begins to link the genetic and the environmental factors that might be causing um, many addictions. Absolutely. Um, we know that addiction is a chronic brain disease. It has clear genetic and environmental influences. Uh, geneticists can, we can even quantify the level of genetic contribution mm -hmm. that our genes are making to this uh, disease. 
at the same time, there are immense environmental influences, such as early exposure to the drug of abuse. So adolescents who are using drugs or alcohol or nicotine are at a much higher risk for addiction later. That's an environmental factor. Also, um, stress, uh, trauma, these are kind of huge environmental predictors of, uh, of later uh, abuse. Uh, as Dan mentioned, so is mental illness. Um, as far as genetics go, and so let me talk about two things. Mm -hmm. One is addiction as a chronic disease. Um, what do I mean by addiction as a chronic brain disease? It really, in the sense, we can manage addiction we cannot cure it. Mm -hmm. Much like diabetes, once someone has diabetes, we can help them manage that disease, uh, and it has to be managed for the rest of their lives. It really is a long-term treatment. The same thing for addiction. It has to be managed for the rest of their lives. Um, we know it's a chronic disease in, in three kind of specific ways. One is the prevalence rate. The prevalence of addiction is roughly between 15-20%, which is similar to diabetes, hypertension. Also, the relapse rate. So in terms of relapse, how often is a diabetic going to have, its, have his blood sugar completely out of control or, or an addict? It's roughly similar, about 50%. Um, and then finally, the genetics. The amount that genetics contributes is similar for uh, addiction versus diabetes, hypertension, somewhere between 20 and 80%, depending on the drug mm -hmm. of abuse. So as with any long-term chronic illness, the treatment has to take that into account. We, we can't rely on simply one mode of mm -hmm. treatment. It mm -hmm. has to be in, in, in multiple stages, and it has to be lifelong treatment. Mm. And you talked about some of your research in terms of what happens in the brain yep. that um, stimulates um, the response that says, I want more of this stimulant. Yeah. <laughs> Is that right? Yeah. Am, am I capturing yeah, that? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So, so drugs of abuse, uh, as soon, in every exposure changes uh, our brain. Mm. It's called neuroplasticity. Circuits in our brain are changing their function based on this very uh, strong neuromodulator that you're introducing, cocaine, heroin, alcohol, mm -hmm. all these things. And uh, once that system is out of balance and it's broken, um, it can take a really long time for it to kind of get back in, in balance. Mm. And we should think about uh, uh, addiction also in, in the sense of a disease of a circuit, mm -hmm. not simply a, you know, a, a, a chronic disease, but a disease of a brain circuit that needs to be realigned okay. and, and readjusted. So neuroplasticity has a huge role in the progression towards addiction. Our, um, uh, our cells in, in critical areas of our brain, such as the nucleus accumbens, uh, become uh, either, uh, uh, they actually respond less and less to uh, stimulus. So they become like hypo-responsive and that causes um, a user to take more and more of the drug to kind of get that same mm -hmm. feeling back. We, we can talk more about kind of the circuit, what it regulates and what it was actually designed for, um, I mean, it certainly was not this, this brain circuit that we have that mediates addiction was not designed to respond to drugs or abuse. It was really designed as a survival circuit to mediate natural rewards such as sex, food, uh, exploratory drive, and it gets hijacked by these drugs of abuse mm. that, uh, yeah. So back to Dan, uh, uh, Dr. Dan Johnson, uh, Acadia Family Center. So you mentioned uh, treatment um, that's long-term, mm -hmm. um, and it's both um, kind of a um, counseling 
but there's also a drug um, kind of to help you move from addiction away from addiction. Is that, am I summarizing it roughly? Yes, in, in, in terms of opioid addiction. And this, okay. is the, this is what we see in the headlines every day. Now, at Acadia Family Center, we treat uh, all types of addictions, alcohol still being one of the, the foremost. But it, in terms of opioid addiction, um, we need to offer um, the person a way of stabilizing themselves. Because of this uh, change in brain circuitry that Vivek just talked about, um, they will continue to crave the substance. And one of the circuits that's involved is um, the prefrontal cortex. Now, this is the part of the brain that is involved in decision-making, judgment, impulse control, but also willpower. Hmm. And this is goes back to our previous conversation about um, what, how people were, were stigmatized about this, but you actually don't have as much willpower. So to criticize someone for that is actually uh, completely unfair. So what we offer is um, there are two substances to, to stabilize someone with opioid addiction. One is methadone and one is buprenorphine. Uh, methadone is on, has to be a, a federally licensed site, and uh, the nearest one is in Bangor. But buprenorphine can be prescribed by a physician. Um, and what we do, we have a, a psychiatrist that prescribes for us in our, in our suboxone program. And um, that medication takes away the craving. Hmm. It stabilizes that, that the person now no longer gets up in the morning thinking, where am I going to get my drug? What am I going to do? Uh, it allows them to be successful, to, to rebuild their finances, their physical health, their relationships. And that's the other component. That's the counseling piece. Right. And um, the counseling for me is, is where it's at. And, uh, and I'm a therapist, so it's, I'm, I'm biased. But um, you can't just give them the substance to stabilize them because drug addiction can lead to devastating consequences. Um, people can end up with criminal uh, consequences, and, and that's a system you want to avoid at all costs because it's not really a supportive system in terms of addiction and mental health. And so we do whatever we can to sort of get them back on their feet as far as um, getting back to the, in the workforce, um, taking care of their children. Um, sometimes we're working closely with DHHS, helping families get their children back because of, of removal during a time of severe uh, addiction. And so those are all critically important parts of treatment. And um, we have had uh, so many uh, people come in and get that help and turn their lives around dramatically. And uh, it's because it's all confidential, we can't go and, and, and brag about it openly. But uh, we do feel that we're providing an important uh, service to the community, and uh, we're proud of that. Mm. And at th this point, we'll bring uh, Sophie into our conversation. Sophie is a, a pseudonym, but um, Sophie is a client of Acadia Family Center. And uh, Sophie, thanks so much for joining us and, and being willing to tell tell a little bit of your story. Um, welcome uh, to Talk of the Towns. Thank you for having me. Hi. Tell us a little bit about uh, what, what you would like to share in terms of your story and okay, the, the treatment um, that you've had at Acadia Family Center. Sure. Well, I have been um, an active addict for give or take 20 years, I would say, on and off. I have had periods of recovery and periods of relapse. And I have been uh, going to the Acadia Family Center for a year. I've, I'm in the Suboxone program. 
Um, and I am actually, I'm getting ready to go off it, which is a slow process of, you know, weaning. But um, in that time, I have had probably the most solid, solid recovery I've had for um, a long time. And um, I think what is special or, you know, what I'd like to say is that I am just a normal person. I am an active member of society. I am not, I thank God, I was not in trouble with the law. I have children. I'm married. Um, you would not look at me and think addict, but I am an addict. And, um, you know, it's, we carry a lot of shame. We're stereotyped. There's this, you know, stigma, but I think people need to know that, you know, we are everywhere. Mm. So, How did you find your way to Acadia Family Center? Um, through a friend, mm-hmm. through a friend. Mm-hmm. yeah, mm-hmm. got in. So it's a wonderful program. And Dan has talked about the dual elements of, of opioid addiction treatment. Um, yeah. What would you say in terms of the, the counseling portion? What's made the difference for you? Um, oh, boy. Well, I, have, I work a lot on um, shame and lifting, you know, the addicts. We, we all have it. We mm-hmm. just have this shame and... I have worked a lot on, you know, just realizing that I, I have a disease just like a diabetic or, you know, it is a brain disorder. It is not something that I chose and, um, you know, works on my willpower. And through my suboxone treatment, I have come and learned to, you know, respect the medicine and learn how to take it. And um, that's something I never, never could do. Mm-hmm. So, um and and the shame comes um, because society um, sees you as something that you're not. Yeah, and you know, as an addict, we, we do things. We go to great lengths to get our our drugs, and we um, you know we do things that we're not proud of. That we know you know it's, it's not the right decision. But mm-hmm. you just when you know when you're sick and you need your your medicine, you will do what it takes to get it. Sure. So, um, and but, um, so I have two two groups that I would like you to kind of give some advice to, and and, and the first is the general public, the the, yeah. the person who might know someone who's addicted but um, doesn't know the details. So that's one group, and then the second, those people who um, suffer from addiction, and they're not getting treatment now. So I'd like you to you know offer any advice that you have for, for those two groups, starting with the the general public, if you could. Ooh. Well, general public, I mean, I would just say, you know, that, like, um, your friends may be quietly suffering with an addiction. And, you know, in my case, this is true. I, I have not been public about my um, my struggles. I just, you know, I have kept it very quiet. And um, I just to be careful and be open-minded and just to, you know, try to really read and learn and, and realize that this this really is not a choice that um, the addict has, and it, it really is. In, in my case, it's, I believe it's a, it's a genetic disposition that I was born with, and, um, you know, my mother was an addict. My mother's mother was an addict. It's just it's just my lot. Yes. And, uh, so, um, and to the suffering addict, I, you know, I would say that there's help. You just, you know, it's the, the life that you're living it's not you're not living it's um it's a slow slow process to death and um it will kill you and um you know just choose to live pick up the phone and and call the acadia family center another center or 
go to a meeting, go to an AA meeting, or, you know, there's help. Mm. So. Sophie, anything else you'd like to add? Um, I know. I, uh, I think that's it. Well, thank you so much for your voice. Um, well, thank it's you so for important to uh, have uh, you speak um, to our listeners, and, and uh, thank you so much for being part of Talk of the well, Towns this morning. Thank you, Ron. Mm. Thanks, Sophie. Okay. Bye-bye. I think we're going to take a short break, and uh, this is the uh, pledge drive for um, WERU, and so we're going to take that short break now. That's right, and this is Amy Brown here in the studio with Joel Mann. 1-800-643-6273. We can't say it enough. And uh, we can't thank Ron Beard enough for the many, many years that he has been bringing great guests to WERU Airwaves. Uh, your community coming in here to talk about issues that the community faces day in and day out. It's the backbone of community, and in a lot of ways, that's what WERU is. We give a platform for people to come in and talk about the issues that are important. And if this is important to you, if you t- take away anything from these programs, and you must, uh, then please give us a call and make a pledge, 1-800-643-6273, and show your support for work that people like Ron Beard do. Right. Talk of the Towns is one of the longest-standing programs here on WERU, if not the longest-standing talk show that we have. And uh, was this, uh, Coastal Conversations was spun off from this program. He's been doing this show for many, many years. And probably if the, all of you out there who are listening who've ever been on this show That's contributed right. a dollar, we could close down the pledge drive. But this is a really important resource for the community. And we know that a lot of people call in during the music shows and say that they support the public affairs shows. But if you're listening right now, it'd be great for Ron to hear your support. Call 1-800-643-6273. We'll put your name in the watering can for a drawing for a book we'll be doing at 5 o'clock tonight for a book about dark money, the money influencing politics. I don't have the book right in front of me now, but call 1-800-643-6273 and get your name in the drawing for that and support Talk of the Towns. And if you're someone who was uh, out there who who has been working hard in the community to bring uh, topics such as these, hard topics to talk about and brave people to call up and talk about them, um, you've got to show your support for that kind of thing. For your friends, your neighbors, the people that you work with, um, it's very important that you support a community resource like WERU, and you can do that in many ways. But right now, we're looking for your monetary pledges, 1-800-643-6273. Donate in whatever amount works for you. We don't have any minimum amount to become a member. Join the community. We recognize that $5 for one person is the same as 50 for another, or the same as 500 for another. Whatever works for you in your budget, 1-800-643-6273. Thanks. Thanks a lot. Thanks so much, uh, Amy and Joel, for uh, your support, and thanks to all the listeners who have supported uh, Talk of the Towns over the years. We hope that support will continue, 1-800-643-6273. I'm in the studio with uh, Dr. Dan Johnson, Executive Director of Acadia Family Center, and Dr. Vivek Kumar, Assistant Professor at the Jackson Laboratory, and he's also a board member at Acadia Family Center. So Sophie's call um, was just so uh, important for me to hear, and I'm sure our listeners as well. Um, 
you mentioned that that uh, um, uh, drug addiction can start early. Um, yep. t t tell us a little bit more about that, and then we'll um, talk perhaps about the marijuana initiative and what your your take on that is. Yeah, Dr. So, Kumar. So, if we think about the brain as a developing system. Um, Development of the brain is not complete till somewhere in our 20s, probably 24, 25, around that time. So when we expose this developing system to uh, drugs such as nicotine, which is legal at the age of 20, uh, 18, or alcohol that's legal at the age of 21, we're actually doing uh, damage to our brain. We're, we're modulating the functioning of this very complicated system. Um, so the age at which, and we know this, the age at which someone starts using drug, the earlier they start using their drugs uh, the, or expose, exposure to the drug, the more chances they have of becoming addicts and having issues uh, as adults. So I, I feel very strongly that um, you know, drugs, even the legal ones, which are actually our biggest problems, mm -hmm. should not be legal at 21 when our brain is not right. fully when we, when formed. We get that 21 <coughs> or even 18 as a, as a, as a yeah. marker. Um, it probably started when we wanted to recruit people to go to war, and we said, oh, 18 is a good draft age. We can, we can take those young men and some women um, and draft them. And right. then um, voting age, I suppose. Right. So, but that doesn't make sense in terms of the biology of the brain that no. we've just come to discover. Absolutely. Yeah. No, and the brain grows from back to front. So this is why we have 12-year-olds who can do a skateboard upside down, and uh, we can't. But the last part of the brain to develop is that is the prefrontal cortex. Again, the part of the brain where decision-making, judgment, insight is so critical. And so um, we're really... Uh, it's a little bit like Russian roulette when, you, when we, we see th this early drug exposure. Um, so I have a, when I do a talk out in the community, I have a, a chart that shows, for example, alcohol use in teens. And if they start at 12, the chances of getting an alcohol use disorder are extraordinarily high. If they start at 14, it's a little lower. If they start at 16, it's about half what it was. And at 18, it's lower and so forth. It's just we just see this so clearly that um, the brain is not prepared to, uh, to manage these substances. They're really uh, making some, some, um, some significant changes. The, um, I don't know if this is a good time to talk about the marijuana piece, mm -hmm. but we have our... So we've just, uh, yeah. the state of Maine has <laughs> just passed an initiative. Right. Um, did you sense that um, um, these kinds of facts were part of that debate, or were they missing from that debate? What do you think? I uh, yeah, I I did not certainly get the feeling that neurobiology was taken into account uh -huh. uh, in, in this debate. It was uh -huh. more the the legal system, the criminal justice system, right. was the big at, uh, factor. Right, and all, all of the good reasons, you know, perhaps to to avoid um, messing people up with a, with a legal system. But right. you're saying that probably no one was thinking about the brain. Yeah. In this, yeah. In this. we know marijuana is addictive. Okay. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, there's no doubt about that. Let's make that very clear. Mm. Um, we also know that something like 5 to 6% of high school seniors are using marijuana on a regular basis. And um, so we really have to ask ourselves, is, you know, are, do we really want to make another uh, addictive substance legal? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. that's, that's a question that we need to have as a society. Right. And when I worked at the psychiatric hospital, um, we would have um, people come in 
uh, young people, 18 to 22, sometimes who were floridly psychotic. And we, and we would try to figure out what led to this psychotic break. Um, for some of them, it was simply smoking marijuana. And it has a, a characteristic that actually can precipitate a psychotic break for those who are prone to it. Now, we don't always know who, is, who are prone for it. And I'm not saying that everyone who smokes marijuana is going to have that. Obviously, that's not true. But for a certain percentage of people, it does place, place them at heightened risk uh, for things. that you know These are things that we, just, we didn't talk about. Um, I have tremendous concerns about the availability of marijuana products falling in the hands of children. Uh, again, there we have even more vulnerable brains mm. uh, and, and so forth. So um, it's, a, it's a mixed bag. Uh, I think uh, we have alcohol, a legal substance. We tried prohibition. That didn't seem to work. And I think we're going to have to learn to live with these substances. Um, but I think we have to also be very, very careful uh, watching where, how they're used and who use, who's using them. Mm. Will we get to a place, uh, uh, Vivek, that um, we can, we can t- test someone and find out their vulnerability because of their genetic makeup to um, addictive substances? Yeah, I mean, we're certainly not there now, but that's, that's one of the goals is to you know, have kind of a, a, a genetic vulnerability chart, mm-hmm. and then we can tell that person, uh, do this, but don't do this. And, and, and we as can, we heard from Sophie's story, yep. um, she knew that her mother and her grandmother mm. were right. um, addicts. And so, you know, that if, if anybody is out there listening now who has that kind of family history, that could ask the, the you could you could ask the, the question: Does it make sense for me to start using? Yep. Yeah. 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 And, and those are those are interesting because. There's a genetic predisposition, but there's also, if you grew up in a household where that was the coping mechanism for stress or for managing conflict, was to use a substance, and we also have modeling. So it's, in, in, in a sense, a, a double yep. double impact there. So those are, those are difficult to tease out, but if you do have family history, you just need to be so careful. And, mm-hmm. in, and you should be letting your children know you're at a higher risk mm. because of that family history. So you have to be very, even more careful. And honest. It seems honest. like you know, that honesty really um, goes to the heart of, of the shame issue. <laughs> um, if we aren't honest with our kids, with yep. our, 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 our peers, society as a whole, we're, we're doing a dis- real disservice. Right. And Sophie said it so well because she, she named the, uh, the, the shame was uh, such a big issue. Shame, I call shame the most toxic emotion we have. And uh, I differentiate shame and guilt by saying guilt is I feel bad about what I did. Mm-hmm. Shame is I feel bad about who I am. Mm-hmm. And we really have to make sure we um, avoid shaming and help people who, who have that sense of shame. Sometimes it's, it's, it, it's, in, it's something they, they just do themselves because they feel so bad about what they're what they're doing in, in their life, mm. and we have to help them correct that thinking. Mm. I'll li- open up our phone lines now if there are listeners who have their own stories to tell or questions to ask our guests in the studio, Dr. Dan Johnson and Dr. Vivek Kumar. Uh, please give us a call at one 625 That's one 625 You're tuned to Talk of the Towns. We're talking about addiction, emerging research, and best practices in treatment. Um, uh, Dan, you've uh, described a new community effort uh, that you, a model call you call the, the hub and spoke model. Talk a little bit about that and that connection to um, Healthy Acadia. Sure. Um, I'm part of a larger um, 
group, uh, the Down East uh, Treatment uh, Network, that Elsie um, Fleming, the Healthy Acadia, are sort of uh, chairing and leading. But it's a group of uh, professionals in our area who are really concerned about this uh, opioid epidemic in, in Down East Maine. And so for the past 18 months, we've been meeting monthly and trying to come up with a solution. And what we've come up with is a uh, something called the hub and spoke model. The hub would be a treatment center where we initiate uh, buprenorphine treatment uh, and then once the person stabilized, they would go to their communities, the spokes, and receive the treatment from a, a physician in the community as well as counseling from that community as well. And uh, we feel we've made great progress. We have the three local hospitals, the Blue Hill Hospital, the Ellsworth Hospital and the MDI Hospital all contributing, all participating fully, and Acadia Family Center has the substance abuse license, so we'll be contributing our expertise and uh, some administrative support, and we hope to have this happening uh, sometime in the first half of 2017. So we're excited about this. This is a outpatient pro program in Hancock, Washington County area that we can identify as trying to reduce the uh, wait list for people trying to who actually decide they want treatment but they have to have some opportunities to, to get treatment so mm. we're excited about that and so this is different than methadone because physicians um, can prescribe um, this this kind of drug that helps stabilize right um, so people would come on a regular basis um, to the outpatient clinic um, and for how long might that that outpatient work um, uh, uh, go yeah and that's a really good question uh, how long it takes uh, is uh, is a question where some people may need to be on uh, the replacement therapy we call uh, either buprenorphine or methadone for the rest of their lives, mm. depending on the amount of damage that's been done to their brains. And that there's several variables there. This depends on what you are using, how you are using, and um, other other factors. So, um, but if we can get someone to come in and in probably two months be stable. Uh, and then uh, go to a spoke, then I think then we allow a new wave of people to come in. Mm -hmm. So we, we keep the, the um, people who need treatment having the option there for them to sort of not have to be on a terribly long wait list and get them in and then into their community for treatment. That's the ideal. Mm. And so the treatment, as you said, is, is both the, um, the, the replacement um, drug and the counseling, and that counseling would happen um, both at the the hub, yes. but then increasingly at the spokes as well. Exactly, and you know we in my program at, at Kitty Family Center we mandate weekly counseling for the first six months, um, and then sometimes it's every other week, but uh, that's a critical part because we have to rebuild those lives. the The hub model is probably it, it's utilizing group therapy, and uh, then they could when they go to their spoke. Uh, community, it could be individual or a group, it, uh, but um, we definitely need that component. Mm. And and either to the to the community or to the individual, um, what's the payment mechanism for um, this kind of work? Well, um, insurance covers uh, a lot of this. If you have insurance, um, if you don't have insurance, uh, at our center we have a sliding scale. We don't turn people away if they don't have the ability to pay, um, and. The um, hub and spoke model, that program, which is um, a little different, 
will come up with their own funding mechanism, but it's, it's sort of based on the same notion that we have. We know that there are people there who don't have the resources, who need the help, and it's, it's certainly um, a great investment. Uh, every, every dollar we spend on prevention and treatment uh, is, is, um, is multiplied tenfold for what it costs of incarcerating someone or having them work in uh, the Department of Human Services or whatever it takes to sort of manage their lives. Uh, it's just a good investment, mm. dollar for dollar. one 625 if you'd like to participate in our conversation about addiction, emerging research, and best practices. Um, the, the societal policy kinds of questions are certainly up in the air. Mm. You've mentioned the, the referendum on marijuana. Um, what's the, what, what's, what are some of the other debates that are going on in the state of Maine, for instance, in terms of this, this subject? Uh, how, would you, how would you characterize um, uh, the state of Maine's uh, r- response to this. Well, we have we we have a governor uh, that is not s- terribly sympathetic to this situation. Um, he's trying to close down methadone programs. He's openly said this. Um, he's also trying to place a limit on how long someone could be on buprenorphine. Um, there's no science behind those positions whatsoever, uh, and so the policy problems stem from people trying to make a a decision without looking at the science, without understanding what's going on, and then imposing some arbitrary um, political um, agenda. So I think that's that's a huge, a huge problem we have to sort of confront. Dr. Dr. I mean, the Medicaid expansion would have covered a lot of Mm -hmm. addiction treatment that was rejected by the legislature. we know that, uh, you know, just evidence-based treatment in, in terms of what works, you need the pharmacotherapy, but you also need behavioral therapy, mental health services. In many cases, addiction or use of, of addictive substance is a symptom of a mental illness. So if we want to treat addicts who have mental illnesses as comorbid conditions, we have to kind of treat both of those mm. conditions. Mm. We know that addicts are going to need uh, legal services because if we want to integrate them back into society, they may need family services, child care services. They may also need vocational help to get back into the job force. They may may need educational services. They may have lost their driver's license and may even need transportation or housing. Um, We've got to think of treating the whole person and every aspect of that person um, it does not make sense just to have just pharmacotherapy and then leave all these uh, other aspects of it un, un, unaddressed. Mm-hmm. So I think it's it's really, and that costs a lot of money. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. And, and that's what we have to really think about is, is you know, how do we holistically treat addiction at, at every level? Um, behavioral therapy is really key in substituting the drug with positive uh, natural rewards such as exercise, such as social bond. If you think of addiction almost as a uh, a memory, like you know you see certain things and you want a drag of a cigarette, or if you walk into a bar, we, we have to like break those behavioral memory-based uh, uh, associations. And so that th- th- there's something in the brain that says I derive some pleasure, and I want to repeat that. Yes, and you, what you're it's, saying it's, is yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's Pavlovian learning. Uh, uh, you associate a cue with a, a reward, 
and you know you're in certain conditions and all of a sudden you you're you know you you associate that with getting a hit or getting something out of that and so, so you say that the counseling then says there are other ways to get that exactly that pleasure that yeah that hit. exactly right. or to even preempt that and not put yourself okay. in that in that okay. situation yeah. right yeah one of the things that we we confront and this is again i think it is a societal uh, uh position for many people is that um is a question of abstinence therapy versus uh -huh. medication assisted therapy uh -huh. and for some things um for alcohol, for example, abstinence is a, a really uh, good goal. Um, for, for opioid addiction, uh, abstinence models have not been successful. Um, and every professional organization that uses evidence-based treatment guidelines supports medication-assisted treatment. And that's something that, again, goes back to what are the, the cultural expectations, societal um, decisions about, well, why can't they just stop using? Uh, we need to get past that. Mm. I do believe we have a call from Eric in Trenton. Go ahead with your question or comment, please. Yeah. My question is, uh, have you uh, got any thoughts on some of the other programs in the state State are offered? It's not necessarily uh, from the uh, supported by the govern government, but it also LePage has supported it, which would be like Seven Oaks and Blessed Hope. You know, there's, there's other religious programs. Or are you guys kind of against that? That's so a great, great I'll question. I'll hang up and get a good theory on that. But okay. I, I do know people that are in those programs, uh -huh. and they seem to work. So I mean, their their lives have fallen to hell. But when when you know when you get into those programs, they're intensive, but they do work. Great. Thanks so much for your call this morning. Yep. And other other folks can call one eight six 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 two five nine three seven eight. So a variety of programs out there. What's evidence based? <laughs> That's the question, I think. Right. Well, Eric has a really good question, and I think it's uh, it's a fair question to ask. Um, some of the programs he's referencing, I'm not specifically familiar with, but um, they often are more of an abstinence-based model. Um, what those programs offer, which I think is so helpful, is the social uh, connection that people can go and be with other people uh, who are suffering from the same addiction, and they, they, they do benefit from that tremendously. Um, so but the Alcoholics Anonymous, um, Narcotics Anonymous, those are exam also examples of programs that provide that social support. Right, and for that, for, and, and that's that's important. Um, but for the opioid partic particularly uh, problem, is it's just those haven't been shown to be effective. Mm -hmm. um, the relapse rates we've seen them are in the ninety percentiles. So that's not the solution we're looking for. But if we can combine the social piece with the, the, the science, then we have a really the best of both worlds. Mm. Yeah, I think it can't be one or the other. It has to be both. Right. Or right. not just both, maybe like a bunch of things. Well, we're all social <laughs> um, beings. So yeah. that there's something that um, re is really important about doing um, our own work in a setting that has other people doing that same work. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And that's you mentioned that in terms of some group therapy. Um, that right. That's there too. Yeah, yeah, the group therapy is is incredibly uh, powerful, and uh, you you begin hearing you know people who are suffering from some of the very same things that you may not be willing to sort of share, but mm -hmm. they're they're sharing it. And suddenly, it's, oh my goodness, I'm not alone. Um, Yalom calls this universality. It's a sense of we we share this common experience, and uh, we then by having that 
commonality, we then can draw upon each other and what has worked for you, or this has worked for me, and call me if you need help, and those kind of things are so important. Mm. one 625 As we continue our conversation with uh, Dan Johnson and Vivek Kumar about addiction, emerging research, and best practices. Uh, Dr. Kumar, what are some of the unanswered research questions? Where Where is the research headed? What, what are you trying to think about next? Yeah, so um, from a genetic perspective, we know that there's a large uh, influence of genetics to uh, addiction, but we don't know exactly what these genes and what these genetic variants are. Mm. I think a real large unanswered question is, can we find the exact genetic variants that kind of uh, are make an individual more vulnerable to addiction than another person? So from, from the genetic perspective, we certainly have a lot of work to do. Uh, we're using a lot of uh, mouse model systems to kind of attack uh, this problem. Um, and is that, that's the same kind of problem that other chronic diseases are facing as well, looking for that gene so yeah. that you might be able to do something about right, that. Right, right. Yeah. yeah, especially in, in human populations when you have these complex disorders that have a, a, a mixture of genetics and environment, it becomes really difficult to tease mm -hmm. that apart. So we can kind of quantitate uh, this the level of genetic influence, but we can't pinpoint exactly what these genetic influences are down to like the nucleotide mm. variant mm. level. Mm. And that's where using mouse model systems can be really helpful in, in finding uh, genes and variants that in influence addiction. So so that's one aspect that, that at least my work is really focused on is trying to find individual genes and pathways that regulate mm. uh, addiction. The uh, the idea of plasticity and what, uh, how the brain changes in response to drug, that's a huge area of research as well as how once someone becomes an addict, how do you actually treat them? What are the effective therapies? There's still no biomarker for addiction, meaning I ca you can't take a blood test to identify someone as addict or non-addict. Um, yeah, so there, there is a lot of work that needs to be done in this area. And in fact, um, if we look at, you know, we come back to this idea of cost and, and expenses, um, addiction costs the United States about $700 billion a year, B with a, mm. a, a billion with a B. Uh, we spend roughly $10, $10.2 billion on research, treatment, prevention. So there's really a discrepancy right. in where that money is going. And that expense of addiction comes in lost productivity, criminal justice system, um, health care costs once, you know, when someone needs a liver transplant, for instance. I mean, and so we really need to invest more on the prevention end, on the treatment end, on the research mm. end. And Dan, is that where you're, you'd like to go in terms of, of uh, uh, the, the new methods of treatment into the prevention field? I mean, you've had a long history of that. Is that where we need to be putting more of our, our, our resources? We need to do both. Yes. You know, we really need the, the prevention dollars are even more and more important, um, trying to reach our young people and expose them to these concepts early on so they understand the risks uh, and, and what the, uh, the options are for, for managing their, uh, their, their difficulties. Um, we, we have to um, look at... Uh, what are we doing? Uh, how are we exposing our, our children to issues of trauma and um, whatnot? My my th 
background is as a trauma researcher and therapist. So we we do a lot of that trauma work because um, these these some of these drugs, the opioids in particular, um, they treat not just physical pain, they treat emotional pain. So people who are suffering from sexual abuse, physical abuse, emotional abuse, domestic violence, um, neglect. Uh, those are those are people who are prone to sort of try to sort of quell some of that emotional pain with an opioid, uh, with alcohol, um, and these other substances. So we know that if we can then get in there in a preventive way to sort of deal with the trauma, then we're actually actually reducing the the risk to addiction. Mm, mm. So I th- what I hear you saying is that that. Um Opioids and alcohol work to reduce pain, but they're not the long-term solution. No, exactly. Yeah. They yeah. work. They work on a very short term, uh-huh. yeah. and then you end up not just with the original problem. Now you actually have additional right. huge problem of addiction. So, um, but but there are there are better ways of dealing with those problems than turning to a substance. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And it seems like we're all. All of these uh, issues are related to that human condition that you described earlier of, of feeling shame, yeah. of feeling um, I'm not, um, whether I've suffered from sexual abuse or, or um, uh, 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 that sort of thing, I'm feeling less than I need to be. And so I'm looking for some outside ability to, to cope with that. Right. And that's why I mentioned before when I used to work with first and second graders in prevention education, we want to work with managing normal uh, stressors in their lives, so they find a way of, of resolving those the sense and building a positive self uh, identity, uh, so they can go into the world feeling stronger and have their internal resources, not having to look externally for for mm. support. Mm. And uh, Dr. Kumar, advice to budding scientists: lots of work to be done, huh? Oh yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. yeah, I think um, uh, complex behavior is one of the fields where we. Uh, we there's a lot we don't know and uh and and so uh i think this is a really exciting area of of of, uh, research Mm. for me well i've got another one um how do you help someone who doesn't use evidence-based research to make their policy decisions maybe that's a treatment thing that we need to be investigating yeah yeah. <laughs> well, it shows that you know, our, our, our education can't just be to our young people. It has to be to our policymakers sure, as well. <laughs> sure, sure. Well, we've come to the, the end. Any um, hopes that you'd like to share, um, things that are emerging? You mentioned this hub-and-spoke model. Um, how, how else would you like to see us work on these things together? Just let people know that treatment works. If you need help, please try to seek treatment, and you'll, you'll be benefited from that. Great. Thank you so much. Thank yeah, you. Thank you. We've come to the end of the hour. Be sure and join us from 10 to 11 on the second Friday of each morning for Talk of the Towns. Podcasts of this program and past programs can be found in the archive section of the WERU website. If you've got comments or suggestions, please may email us at news at weru.org. And tune in to our companion program, Coastal Conversations with Natalie Springle, on the fourth Friday of each month. Our theme music is a medley from Karnak on a bound-named House Highland Music recording. Thanks again to our guests in the studio, Dr. Dan Johnson, Executive Director of Acadia Family Center, and Dr. Vivek Kumar of uh, the Jackson Laboratory and also a board member at Acadia Family Center. And thanks so much for Sophie for calling in this morning. Thanks to um, our underwriters. Thanks to Amy Brown for engineering our program and stay tuned for On the Wing with Joel Raymond. This is Ron Beard, your host for Talk of the Towns, wishing you a good morning.